You're listening to Station F, the podcast. From the world's largest startup campus in Paris. This is Station F, the podcast, and I'm your host, Roxanne Varza. I'm incredibly excited about this week's guest, who's Aaron Mayer, a current professor at INSEAD, who many of you know is a partner at Station F. But actually, Aaron recently co-authored a book with Reed Hastings, who is CEO and founder of Netflix. We wanted her on the show, obviously, to talk about her recent book, but also to talk about her previous book, The Culture Map. The Culture Map is an incredibly important book for all companies that are working on a global level, which should probably be just about every startup today. Given that one-third of our community at Station F is international and comes from different countries, we thought that this could not be more relevant. Now let's dive in. Hi, Erin. Welcome to the show. Nice to be here, Roxanne. Wonderful. Well, obviously, you have just come out with this new book with CEO of Netflix, Reed Hastings, and we'll get a chance to talk about that. But actually, the real reason we wanted to have you on the show was to talk about another book that you wrote, Culture Map. Um, can you introduce the concept of culture mapping for our audience? Yeah, so a culture map is a system that breaks culture down into eight behavioral scales. So we look at things like how do you build trust differently in different parts of the world, or how do you make decisions differently in different countries? And then through about 180,000 interviews that we've conducted in about 62 countries, we have countries positioned up and down these behavioral scales. So then you can map up one country to another. Like, for example, we might map up whatever, France up to Germany or uh, Spain up to China. And as you map the country, the countries up, you can see in which ways they're similar and in which ways there are big gaps that you need to be aware of so that you can adjust your own strategy in order to improve your effectiveness. Super. And so we're going to get a chance to really dive into some concrete examples in just a second. But I want to know, why is all of this important? Well, I think that this becomes quite complicated because we have these kind of like oversimplified stereotypes of what cultures are like, which is nowhere um, nowhere near the complexity of the reality. I mean, one example, so let me just say, I mean, I'm American, but I've lived in France for the last 21 years. And one big misunderstanding between France and the US that we see when we do the mapping is about feedback. So Americans are much more explicit than French people are. French people have a more of a tendency to, let's say, like speak between the lines. And because of that, the French are likely to say, oh, Americans are really direct, right? But when it comes to giving negative feedback, we actually see something quite different. I'll give you an example. I had a, a client I worked with a while ago, a French woman named Sabine. And uh, Sabine was moving to the US. And after she had been there for a while, I did a, a pre-scheduled follow-up call. And first I, call, I started by calling her new boss, who was this American named John. And I asked John, you know, how are things going for Sabine in, in her new job? And John said to me, oh, they're not going 
well at all. And he told me about all of these problems. And he said, you know, I had my first performance review with Sabine last week. I was very clear with her, but I haven't seen an effort on her part to make these changes. I called up Sabine and she said, you know, Aaron, I had my first performance review last week, and this was by far the best performance review I've had really in my career. You know, things are going great. And this is just such a typical cross-cultural misunderstanding because in the U.S., we tend to give a lot more positive feedback wrapped around our negative feedback. Whereas in France, we're more likely to downplay the positive and strengthen the negative. So that's why this culture mapping is quite important because it helps us to avoid these sometimes serious misunderstandings. Yeah, I think that's an example that definitely speaks to me and will probably speak to a lot of our audience that has worked with both French and Americans. But I actually want to know what is really at stake. So obviously you can have cultural misunderstandings, but for a business, is that really such a big deal? Oh, well, I think it's a huge deal for anyone who needs to be influential. And of course, we can't be successful if we're not influential. Let me give you another example, one of my favorite ones. So I finished writing the culture map in 2014. And I remember when I finished writing, I remember the day, right? I was feeling really proud of myself. I thought, oh, Erin, you've really accomplished something. But then the next day, I took a trip to Tokyo. And while I was was there, I I learned something that made me want to go back and write the book again, but it was too late. So the situation was that I gave a 20-minute presentation to a group of 30 Japanese, and at the end, I asked if there were any questions, and no one raised their hand, so I went to sit down. Now, my Japanese colleague who was traveling with me from INSEAD said, Erin, I think there were some questions. Do you mind if I try? Fine. So my Japanese colleague stood up in front of this group and he said, "Um, Professor Meyer has just spoken with you. Do you have any questions? Right? No one raised their hand. But this time he stopped and he silently observed the group right? And he looked around and then he stopped looking at someone who was sitting there from my perspective, motionless. And he said, yes, do you have a question? And the person said, thank you very much. I do. And he asked this fascinating question. My, my colleague did that three more times. So afterwards I said to him, but how did you know that those people had questions? And he said, well, it had to do with how bright their eyes were. And I thought, wow, you know, for me coming from Minnesota, like I do, that is really challenging. But then he clarified, he said, you know, Aaron, in Japan, we don't give as much direct eye contact contact as you do in the West. So when you ask the group if there were any questions, most people were not looking right at you. They were looking somewhere else. But I noticed that there were a couple of people in the room who were really looking right at you and their eyes were bright. And that signifies that they would be happy to have you call on them if you would like to. Okay. So the next day I gave another presentation. Again, I asked if there were any questions. Again, no one raised their hand, but I just wanted to try. So I did what he suggested, right? I stopped 
and I silently observed the group. And as I looked around, I saw clearly he was right. People were not looking right at me. But there was this one Japanese woman in the room who was looking like right at me and her eyes, were they bright? Well, I don't know. But when I looked at them, she held my gaze. So I made a little bit of a gesture and she nodded her head. And I said, do you have a question? And she said, thank you. And she asked a fascinating question. It was such an important learning experience for me because when I came back to INSEAD, I realized that there were all of these bright eyes that were in my classes that I was just entirely missing, not just from the Japanese. So your question was, why is that it's important? I mean, imagine every day when we're working internationally, we're missing these kinds of cues that inhibit our ability to maximize our effectiveness. And doing this culture mapping can help us a lot. Wow, I love that example. And it's so poetic, the bright eyes. <laughs> I'm going to have to start looking for that myself. Um, I'm wondering, though, is culture mapping really so relevant for early stage companies? Or do you really find that it's most relevant to multinationals or people who are really in a very multinational context? Oh, you know what? It's relevant for anybody. It doesn't matter if you're working internationally every day or if you're making your first move in a tiny company to reach out to another country, to another, another population. I mean, let me just get you to think about this simple element, one of the dimensions on our culture map, which is how we build trust. Okay. I think we all know that we can't get work done if we don't have trust, right? And that's true no matter where you come from. But how we come to feel trust, I mean, that is very different from one part of the world to another. There's, uh, there's two kinds of trust. One, one kind is what we call cognitive trust. Cognitive trust is trust from your brain. That's like, I see you are on time. You do good work. You have a good product. I trust you. Right. And then we have what we call affective trust or emotional trust. That's like trust from your heart. Right. That's like I feel this emotional bond with you or I feel like I've seen who you are beyond your professional persona. So I trust you. And this is actually quite interesting because in countries like, well, like my own, the US or Northern European countries or in the UK, we tend to focus on cognitive trust for work and affective trust for home. Whereas in every emerging market country in the world, there's a much more a stronger emphasis on, on like, like kind of effective and a cognitive trust being all woven together. So then let's think about how that plays out. I was working a while ago with a company from the UK based in London, and they were um, going to China, just a small company, right? They were going to China in order to bid for a deal, right? On some work. So they, they knew they were going to give this presentation and they rehearsed the presentation again and again to get it just right, right? They arrived, they went into that conference room, they gave their hour presentation, they took questions, they said, thank you very much. And they got back, back on the airplane. They thought we nailed it, right? A little later, they found out they had not gotten the work. Of course not, because they hadn't taken the time to build the emotional bonds that are so critical for building trust when you are working in China. So here's just a simple way we can recognize it doesn't matter who you're working with, you need to know how to approach the trust building. 
Yeah, definitely can see that. And I can see that probably also it's it's very infrastructure related as well. Is that correct? Well, yeah, that's actually a really important point, which is there is a reason that every emerging market country is more uh, focused on effective effective trust or, or um, emotional bonding. And that's that in, um, well, let's say we're doing work in um, Switzerland. Okay, Switzerland is a culture that focuses more on cognitive trust. And the institutions and the legal system, of course, in Switzerland are highly reliable, right? It makes it very easy to do business with strangers. You know, I don't know you at all, Roxanne, but you, um, but I give you my product later on. You're supposed to pay me. I know I'm going to get my money because we signed a contract. And in Switzerland, the legal system is so developed and reliable that I know if you don't pay me that I can get the money through the institutions. But if we're doing work in, let's say, Nigeria, where the institutions and the legal system are less reliable, it makes it much more difficult to do business with people that we don't know well. So instead, we look for people that we have relationships who can introduce us to other people they have relationships with. And building those relationships then creates the safety net, net, which becomes the whole like anchor for business. Yeah, I find it I find it absolutely fascinating and I I'm loving these examples. I want to come back to kind of when you introduced the concept of culture mapping. You mentioned that essentially there are these eight different topics and you gave a few of the examples, but can we actually go through what each of them is and what the scales look like? Yeah, well, we'll try to do it quick because eight is a lot, but <laughs> but if we go really quickly, so the first one is what I call the communicating scale, and that looks at, let's keep it simple, we'll say explicit versus implicit communication. So how much we, um, we speak, we say what we mean versus how much we pass things between the lines. And then that's followed closely by what I call the evaluating scale, and that's the one that looks at negative feedback. So whether we focus more on, let's say, saying it straight and honestly, or whether we focus more on being diplomatic and really thinking carefully about how not to, let's say, bruise the relationship or bruise the the confidence of the person that we're talking to. Um, Then we can move on to my favorite one. Now, I'm not going to explain it here because it takes too long. (laughs) You have to look in the book. But um, there's one that actually looks at the the difference between inductive and deductive reasoning. So that focuses on how we are taught to think as children and that how that impacts our ability to like give a presentation or develop um, an influential argument. We also have dimensions that look at how we lead teams how we uh, make decisions. And then there's one that looks at time orientation. So where we are more, whether we are more focused on um, linear punctual time or whether we feel that things are a little bit more flexible. I think I got all eight of them. Oh, I love it. Um, So this essentially means that two different cultures could look at the very same culture completely differently. That's essentially what you're saying. Yeah, well, that's actually the whole critical premise 
of the culture mapping is that it doesn't matter where a country falls. The only thing that matters is the relative distance between the countries. Let me give you an example. So I was doing some work a while ago with a team. And at the beginning, I had just French and British people on the team. And I asked the British group, you know, how's it going on this team? And one of them said to me, well, Aaron, you know what it's like to work with French people, right? You know what it's like to work with French people. They're they're chaotic and disorganized and they're always late, right? A little bit later, I had a group from India join the same team. And after I'd been together for a while, I asked one of the Indians, you know, how's it going on this team? And she said to me, well, Aaron, you know, this Indian woman says, oh, Aaron, you know what it's like to work with French people, right? They're very rigid. They're inadaptable. They're so focused on the punctuality of things that they can't be flexible as things change around them, right? And that's linked to my time orientation scale, my scheduling scale, where you can see that France falls somewhere between the UK and India, which then leads to the opposite reactions of the same culture, right? And that's how these whole dimensions work. It's not a question of looking at what a culture is like, but instead thinking about how societies perceive and understand a culture based on that relative gap. I find that example hilarious, just being in France, knowing the context and, and understanding also potentially Indian and British perspectives. Now, we are in France at the moment, so can we go a little bit more in depth and actually properly map out France? Yeah, well, maybe I'll just kind of give you a couple of examples. So on many of the scales, France falls kind of in the middle, right? So, I mean, that might surprise you also, but like on the trusting scale with the task versus relationship orientation or the cognitive versus emotional trust, France falls sort of towards the middle on that scale, much, much more relationship oriented than the US, the UK, Germany, or Scandinavia, but still much more task oriented than the majority of emerging market countries, for example. But I think the most interesting uh, positioning for France, the one that makes France, let's say, the most, uh, the one that's the most challenging for other countries is my disagreeing scale. Um, so the disagreeing scale, it looks at how uh, much we like to have strong and open debates uh, versus how much we avoid confrontation or disagreement. And uh, France falls quite heavily on the um, confrontational side of the scale, on the scale of, of countries that, that enjoy to have strong, open disagreements. In fact, it's the second strongest confrontational culture in the world after Israel. And this comes, of course, from the French school system, right? This whole, um, this whole premise in the French school system of the, the introduction, the thèse, the antithèse, and the synthèse, right? The, the introduction, the thesis, the antithesis before coming to the synthesis, right? That teaches that we have to build up one argument and then we build up the opposite argument. Um, but this can be before we come to the conclusion, right? But this can be very startling for people who come from cultures that are more avoid confrontation. And I just give you a personal example I had. It's actually not a business example, but can easily be related to business. But when I first moved to France, my husband is French, right? Um, when, uh, so I first moved out, it was 20 years ago, but we went to a, a dinner party and at a friend's house of his, and I was the only non-French person there. And um, during, things started out really well. We were 
were having a great time. But then during the, the, the meal, the group got into what I thought was a big fight. And I remember that the hostess, this woman named Ellen, she started talking about this golf tournament that happens in her village and whether this golf tournament should continue or not. And she said, moi, je suis pour, right? I'm for it. And then she gave all of the reasons that she thought the golf tournament should continue. And then her best friend, Danielle, said, ah, tu dis ça parce que tu es égoïste, right? You say that because you're selfish. And then she said all of the reasons she was against it. And I remember everyone at that meal started taking positions, right? Some people were for it and some people were against it. And I, I remember always the voices raising at the table and the arms waving in my culture, if this kind of discussion happened at the dinner table, this would be a horrible sign. I mean, I would expect three people to stand up, walk out of the room, slam the door, and never come back, right? So I was really wishing I was anywhere but there. I was kind of trying to hide under the table. And I remember someone said to me, well, Aaron, what do you think, right? And I said, I have absolutely no opinion. <laughs> but then at the end of the meal, you know, it was over. And I got in the car with my husband, with my French husband. And I said, oh, miserable evening. And he looked at me totally confused. And he said, well, Aaron, I thought we had a really great time tonight. Of course, it's a non-business example, but I think you can all see how it applies directly to the meeting room, to the conference room, right? Yeah, and I think you may have just explained why we love protesting so much here. <laughs> um, now, I'm wondering, I mean, you've mentioned a little bit, I mean, when you were referencing France, some of the other European countries, but generally, does Europe tend to group together on the scale? No, there are huge differences between one part of Europe to another, which I think is one of the most interesting uh, things about living in uh, living and working in Europe. Just like uh, I think the, the clearest example is my leading scale, which looks at how much we defer to authority or how much respect we show to the person in charge. So I call it egalitarian versus hierarchical, but it's really that how much deference do we have to authority in different parts of the world. And it, we can see huge differences across Europe. So um, Scandinavia, we have the most egalitarian countries in the whole world. And that comes from the Vikings, who managed in tribe by consensus, right? Um, and then we have cultures, of course, like Spain or Italy, where there is a much larger, let's say, respect for authority. And the countries that fell under the influ influence of the Roman Empire uh, tended to learn, you know, these systems of centralizing decision-making systems and creating these more hierarchical patterns, right? During the Roman Empire, but that are still with us today. So I had this situation situation a while ago where I was working with this Spanish guy managing the team in Denmark. And the Spanish guy said to me, you know, managing Danish people is incredible because I go into these meetings and I'm trying to roll out my strategy and get everybody on the same page, but they're disagreeing with me. They're challenging me. He said, sometimes I just want to get down on my knees and beg them, you know, please don't forget that I'm I'm the boss, right? 
so I think this makes leading across Europe really, really interesting. And it means we really have to learn to adapt our leadership style to the population that we're working with, even when we're just working across one continent. Oh, that's so good to know. And yes, there there are definitely a ton of, of differences in Europe. I'm assuming, I mean, we should definitely talk about the US and China, given that there's such important business cultures. What what are you seeing with those two? Are they generally on opposite sides of the spectrum? Uh, are they very, very different to Europe? Well, I wouldn't say that they're totally opposite. So um, let's see, what would be like the total opposite to China? <laughs> of that. The total opposite to China would more likely be the Netherlands. <laughs> that would be a further gap. But I do think we see something quite specific with China and the US, which is that those are two very large countries where people do not have the same exposure to, to um, other cultures as children as we have in Europe. And that means that people are less aware of cultural differences and less perhaps ready to adapt to them. And I think that's really the advantage that we have here in Europe is at least we have exposure early, which may, may make us a little bit more flexible. And now, Erin, I'm wondering because like a lot of the examples, I mean, literally everything that you've talked about is really, it comes down to communication. And so in a world that is so now dominated by digital and remote, um, how do you kind of get over some of these digital barriers? Yeah, well, I think the biggest problem that we have, like in today's Zoom world, is that because it's so easy to reach out to people from other cultures, we may assume that cultural differences are no longer impacting us or don't really matter anymore because we are interconnected. What I actually see is the opposite. The cultural differences are impacting us much more than they were before, but we are less aware of what is going on around us. I'll just give you a simple example. Um, the tendency, for example, to uh, do a recap at the end of a meeting. So um, I was working with a group from India a little while ago, and one of the Indians said, you know, Aaron, in my culture, if we have a discussion on the telephone and we have a little bit of a relationship and we make a decision on that telephone call, that would really be enough for me. But if you get off of the phone and you put into writing everything that we've just decided and you send that to me, that is a clear signal to me that you don't trust me. So that now that we in India are working frequently with our colleagues in Germany, the UK, the US, and France, when people create these recaps and they send them to us, we are continually feeling like, what did we do to break the trust? And it's only recently been explained to me, he said, that actually this is not a question of trust in those countries. It's just a way of doing business. So I think we, when we're working at a distance, we need to be extra aware that the simple practices in one culture that may give no meaning at all might lead to unexpected un, um, reactions. And that's why we need to be particularly informed and aware. That's a particularly good example, I feel, as well, because I think when it comes to email, when it comes to sending invitations and recaps, we kind of go into autopilot and we don't even think that other countries could be different. Exactly. Um, I also am wondering, how do you deal with mapping people of dual nationality, multicultural backgrounds? What kind of map do they fall on? 
Yeah, so I do think it's important to clarify that the research that I do is all with what I call locals. So those are people who were born in one country and have spent their lives living in that country. And I do that to get the consistency of what it's like to be in a culture and of a culture, right? But if you are someone who has lived in four different countries and maybe you have parents from two other countries, maybe you are a culture map yourself. And I think that's also very interesting and important to reflect on as you kind of go through the culture mapping process to to think about your own identity. So I do have a culture mapping tool on my website, which allows you both to click on countries that you're working with and see them mapped out. But there's also a personal profile aspect. So you can respond to 25 questions and then you get your personal map which you can uh, compare to other countries, then you'll find out if you're living in the right country or not. Right. A very important moment. Oh my God, I'm very excited to go try this out on your website. <laughs> um, let me know, Roxanne. Let me know if you're living in the I right country. I will. I'll let you know for sure. Um, and tell me, because you mentioned this in the intro, but it sounds like in order to develop the culture map, you had to interview tons of people in numerous countries. I just want to understand really what did that process look like? How long did it take? Yeah, so that um, the culture map is uh, it's a collection of both some dimensions that were researched by by researchers like Hofstede and Trompenars, um, sometimes even decades before I started doing the research, and then I put them up to date uh, with new dimensions that we added in order to um, reflect the complexity of what today's world looks like. So um, when I do the interviews, I think an inter- interesting point is that I, I never interview people about what their own culture is like. People are not able to describe their own culture, or as we may say it, fish do not see water, right? So if you are a fish and you are in water and of water, you don't see the water around you in the same way if you are Italian living in Italy, you don't see the Italian culture around you, right? Um, So what we do, like if we wanted to get the gap, let's say between Italy and um, Poland, we would interview like a couple of hundred Polish people living in Italy and a couple of hundred Italians living in Poland. And it's as you interview those groups of people that are living in another country that you start to quite clearly actually see the gap between those two cultures. So it's quite a long process. And I always have my INSEAD students validating all of the research that we're getting. So um, I'm very lucky to have that multicultural student-based to have to look at the work every day. Wow, that's a, that sounds like a lot of intense work, but definitely an incredible result. And I'm wondering just now we've kind of really covered a lot of territory with the culture map. Given everything you've just told us, what would be your advice for young companies? Well, I think, um, I mean, young or old, either way, it doesn't matter. Young or old, before you move into other countries, whether that means, you know, go to acquire a new culture or go just send one expatriate somewhere or whether go try to sell your product. I mean, the advice is this. First of all, 
know the cultural differences so that you can ask the questions, right? We can't assume that an individual or an organization is going to be a specific way. Of course, we see lots of variants in every country, but understanding what the tendencies are can lead us to ask to show curiosity. You know, oh, this is how we do this in our culture. How do you do this in your culture? And of course, then we have to show a lot of humility when we ask those questions, which means to laugh at our own culture as much as possible and to, sh to show really like positive words when we're talking about the other culture. So map out your culture, go through the process of understanding what those differences might be. Ask a lot of questions, find a cultural bridge, someone from that culture who you can ask questions to in order to get ready. And then once you start doing the work, if something strikes you as inappropriate or unprofessional, then you can ask yourself, wait, is this cultural or is this personal? And in doing so, you can go back to the culture map, which can help you to get, get have an informed answer to that question. I find that to be really, really good advice. Um, and so culture map actually is also what brought you and Reed Hastings together for the recent book. Um, tell me about that. Yeah, so actually that's what was a that's really a kind of a funny story. So as I mentioned, the culture came out, the culture map came out in spring of 2014. And it was kind of a slow starter. So it turned into a book that a lot of people were reading, but not at the beginning. So I was quite surprised when one day I woke up and I opened up my email and there was an email in my inbox that said, um, hi Erin. I was a volunteer teacher in Southern Africa, close to where you were. My name is Reed. I'm the CEO of Netflix. <laughs> and I was, I actually, I thought it was spam. I didn't think it was real. <laughs> <laughs> getting cold called by Reed Hastings. But then he went on to say that he had read the culture map and that they were using it in their organization at Netflix. So um, that's how I met him. And I started then doing a lot of work with Netflix as they got ready for their international expansion, which happened in January of 2016. Oh, that's, that's hilarious. That's an excellent story. And I'm just Definitely, I think we're all aware that Reed is a, a fan of uh, Culture Map because he even mentions it in the beginning of uh, No Rules Rules. Um, but what is he actually doing with the Culture Map at Netflix? Yeah, well, the first thing that you have to understand is that the Netflix corporate culture was built in a monocultural environment, but is the whole like engine to the company's success. So as Reed got ready to expand into other countries, he was really asking himself, you know, will this, will this corporate culture that has breeded so much success in the U.S., will that work in other parts of the world? And one part that we could look at, for example, is candor. So one of the aspects of the Netflix culture is to give a lot of clear, um, constructive feedback to our, not just our employees, but our colleagues and even our boss on a daily basis. And I can tell you when I started working with Netflix, I was really concerned about what that was going to look like, how that was going to play out in countries like Japan or in Singapore and Brazil, where, um, Feedback is generally given in much more diplomatic or subtle ways, and it's much more likely to break the relationship. 
but I actually learned something interesting. So to give you an example, one of the crazy things they do at Netflix, um, they do this thing that they call um, feedback dinners, right? So they get together uh, once a year, right? The team gets together and um, they sit around the table. And like, if I'm up first, right, we go around the table and everybody at the table gives me feedback about how to improve my performance. And then we moved on to the next person. Okay. When I first heard this, I thought, oh my gosh, it's like public shaming. But I actually came to see it was really useful. I mean, what it, it created this mechanism where people were no longer whispering behind one another's backs, like what happens at most companies, but instead everything was kind of like out in the open and getting discussed, you know, like adults, right? Um, but I was really worried about how, what was going to happen, you know, trying to take these kinds of systems to Singapore, for example. What I found was that in countries like Japan and Singapore, the ad hoc feedback, like stopping people in the halls and telling them what they could do better, that wasn't really happening. But these formal feedback systems where people could prepare, they knew it was for the good of the team and they understood why they were doing it, that actually the Japanese and Singaporeans were better at it than Americans were. So I think what we saw, what I learned from that is that you can have a consistent corporate culture around the world, but you have to grow the behaviors based on the cultural, the specifics of that culture. Like we can value candor everywhere, but how we practice candor will be different in the Netherlands than it will in Brazil. Oh, that's fascinating. And I love the feedback dinner example. I think I might try that with my team. Um, but now maybe to really kind of dive into the book and how you guys work together. I mean, you're not a Netflix employee. We had Patty McCord on the show um, just not too long ago. We got a kind of an insider's perspective. Now, as someone who's not in the company, what was this experience like for you? Yeah, well... So when I first came across the Netflix culture, I can tell you I did not like it at all. So um, some, some listeners may be aware that there is something called the Netflix culture deck, which is a set of slides that explains Netflix culture by Netflix. And it's been downloaded over 20 million times. And the first time I looked at that, I was like, oh, this is horrible. And you know, one of the slides on the deck, it says, um, at Netflix, adequate performance gets a generous severance. And I just couldn't understand how that works because at INSEAD, we focus a lot, we had been focusing a lot on the idea of psychological safety. So if you want your employees to innovate, you make them feel safe, right, was our premise. And here was a company that was saying, if you want your employees to innovate, you know, kick them out, tell them you're going to kick them out if they're not super successful. So I was just very puzzled as to how that could actually work. There were also some other really surprising things in that deck, things that said th uh, like, at Netflix, our vacation policy is take some. Or at Netflix, our expense policy is 
act in Netflix's best interest. And I thought that was interesting, but I just couldn't figure out how those elements would actually play out in a real company. Um, So that's why I became so interested in studying Netflix culture to try to understand how a, a company that was operating in a way that was totally the opposite of everything that we know about psychology had managed to have such dramatic business success. And that's what we wrote about in No Rules Rules. Super. Well, I think now all of our listeners are psyched to go read both books, (laughs) Culture Map and No Rules Rules. Um, I want to just finish with maybe a little bit of advice that you would have. I mean, we already talked about advice regarding kind of culture mapping, but what would be your advice from what you saw at Netflix for young companies just getting started? Yeah, well, let me just tell you one last one last story to wrap this up. So um, the first time that I met Reed, the CEO of Netflix, the founder of Netflix, the first time I met him, he told me a story, which was about his first company, which was an organization called Pure Software. And when he started that company, at the beginning, it was just a small group of people, right? An entrepreneurial company of individuals that were working, let's say, fast and loose. So they they didn't have any rules or process. They were just trying to make their best decisions they could for the good of the company. But then the company started to grow. And as it grew, some people did stupid stuff. For example, there was this guy named Pete who used to fly every week from San Francisco to LA. And because there was no travel policy, he started flying first class, right? Why not? He was more comfortable. And there was this woman named Charlotte who used to bring her dog to work every day because there was no policy against it, right? And one day the dog chewed a big hole in the, in the conference carpet room. On the in the carpet of the conference room, Reed was really frustrated. These things that were happening around him, they were expensive, right? So he and Patty McCord, who you worked with, they um, they created you know a rule book, right? A, a employee handbook detailing you know all the things employees could and couldn't do: the vacation policies, the expense policies, the travel policies, and what. And they also put in management processes, right, in order to let's say to track the behaviors of their, the successes of their employees. Um, But the really crazy, like maverick thinkers, they left the company when this happened. They wanted to work at companies that they could run free. And as that happened, Pure Software stopped innovating. Eventually, Reed had to sell the company because there was no more innovation happening. So with his new company, which was Netflix, he had this thought in his mind, which is that employee freedom breeds innovation, right? And process kills organizational flexibility. And I think that those are the premise then that we can all keep in mind as our organizations grow, right? When we start out, we tend to give employees a lot of freedom. Don't remove the freedom just because your companies get big. Instead, think of other ways that you can, you know, make things successful without tying your employees down. That's what we explain how to do in No no Rules Rules. I think that's a perfect note to finish on and some excellent advice. Uh, Thank you so much, Erin. It's been such a pleasure having you with us. Thank you, Roxanne. All the best to all the listeners. 
All right, everyone. Thank you for joining us. If you like this episode, make sure to give us many, many stars. And if you have any feedback or if you want to suggest a topic or a speaker, uh, we'd love to hear from you on Twitter or by email at press at stationf.co. And finally, make sure to follow us and not miss out on our next podcast episodes. We're available on all your usual podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, and Google Podcasts. All right. See you soon.